Over the next few minutes here on The Morning Show on WGTD 91.1 FM, we're going to be talking about a, a fascinating presence uh, in our world, on our planet, something that we really do not talk about directly all that often, but which is explored in fascinating detail in a new book called Monster of God, the Man-Eating Predator in the Jungles of History and the Mind. And that's a, a lot of what you need to know about this remarkable book, this beautifully crafted title. And uh, the author is uh, David Quammen, who uh, is uh, a much-honored uh, author, and perhaps you have seen his book called The Song of the Dodo. And uh, he's written for National Geographic, uh, Harper's Magazine, and so on. And uh, this is his most recent work, Monster of God. It's published by W.W. Norton and Company. And we're uh, grateful to David Quammen for joining us today on The Morning Show. David Quammen, we welcome you to the program. Thanks, Craig. Good to be with you. Good to have you here. So in this book, you explore those fearsome creatures uh, about our planet who have the means, and uh, at least on occasion, seem to have the predilection, uh, the interest, in, uh, in killing man. And, um, and, in, and in many cases, even eating man, which is, of course, uh, not the loveliest thought. Um, first of all, uh, I think we all understand the subtitle, The Man-Eating Predator in the Jungles of History and the Mind, although we'll talk about that in just a bit. But uh, explain those first three words of the title, Monster of God. Monster of God. Well, the archetypal monster of God is the figure of Leviathan in the Old Testament, particularly in the, in the book of Job. It's a creature that the Lord points to uh, as the ultimate predator, a long-toothed, fire-breathing monster that exists to remind poor Job and the rest of humanity that we are only number three on the food chain of power and glory. It's a creature that, that the Lord uses to humble Job and to humble humanity. And by extension, I apply it to all of these occasionally man-eating predators because one of their effects is to remind humans to be humble, to remind us that, as far as they're concerned, we're just another flavor of meat. You mentioned the fact, and I've found this to be so fascinating, that there is no single collective scientific name or formal right. category for the kind of creatures that we are talking about. You choose to call them alpha predators. Explain that term just a little more uh, uh, specifically for us, please. Right. It's a category that I created. It's not a scientific category, but it's a category, I think, of psychological significance. It includes some reptiles, some fish, some bears, some big cats, for instance, lions, tigers, leopards, brown bear, including the grizzly, polar bear, saltwater crocodile. I, I leave out creatures that are, that are pack hunters, that are school hunters, such as, such as wolves. There is something different about the notion of being attacked by a, a pack of wolves versus being attacked and killed by a single tiger or a single brown bear. So the, the solitary, ferocious, occasional man-eaters are the ones that I call the alpha predators. Hmm. Your subtitle talks about um, the man-eating predator in the jungles of history and the mind. And, uh, and of course, you do explore some of the psychology behind this, certainly the history behind it. And uh, we should also mention the fact that you explore literally the jungles where some of these creatures are found. In other words, you did not... Uh, research this book simply from the safety of your office. 
but uh, th- but th- this was this is also a, a book about your own actual exploration of some of these habitats, and in right. some cases encountering these creatures face to face. The book, right, Greg? The book is a journey. It's a journey through some ancient literatures and myths, but even more importantly, it's a journey through some of the remote places on the planet where these creatures still survive. So I spent time in the Northern Territory of Australia among Aboriginal people who deal with the saltwater crocodile. I went to look at the Siberian tiger in the Russian Far East. I made four trips to Romania where the brown bear survives in a large population still in the Carpathian Mountains. And I went to Western India to look at the last surviving population of Asiatic lion, not tiger, but lion in Western India. You did, of course, uh, also explore this phenomenon uh, through what has been written down through history. Mm-hmm. And indeed, it is a stunning array of, uh, of literature that has been I- inspired by the alpha predator. Yes, this creature or versions of it play an important role in epic literature, in myth, uh, even in scripture, as I said, with the book of Job. Um, the Epic of Gilgamesh, an ancient Babylonian poem, is about the battle between a hero and a, and a terrifying flesh-eating beast. The old English poem, Beowulf, again, Beowulf is the hero. He fights against a flesh-eating monster named Grendel. This sort of archetypal story of the hero versus the flesh-eating beast recurs in many different sources in many different cultures. It's so important that you can find it in place after place. What is, of course, also a fascinating phenomenon is how, time and time again across cultures, uh, these fearsome creatures uh, will not only be feared, but sometimes worshipped. Explain to us how that happens and and what you think the the connection is between fear and and worship in in these particular uh, circumstances. Well, that's what makes this subject so so complicated and so interesting. Our relationship with them has been very ambivalent, almost from the very beginning of recorded human records. We have had reason to be fearful of them, and yet we have venerated them. We have recognized the the majesty, the magnificence of these creatures. One very um, dramatic instance is a Paleolithic art cave in southeastern France known as Chauvet Cave, only discovered in 1994, and this cave turns out to be filled with paintings of lions, of the European cave lion that, um, that shared landscape with humans 35,000 years ago. The humans who painted in this cave expressed their appreciation for the beauty, the, the magnificence of the lions. Hmm. We're speaking with David Quammen. He is the author of Monster of God. Uh, the man-eating predator in the jungles of history and the mind. One thing that I want to make sure we have some time to talk about, so let's talk about it now, is the, the, what, what maybe strikes some as, as a really uh, ironic, surprising fact. That being that alpha predators, by and large, seem to have a rather fragile place in, in the scheme of things, in the natural order, and that these alpha predators, or most of them a- a- anyway, seem to be uh, especially prone to uh, 
to the possibility of 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 utter extinction, right, right. something which would really surprise us. It it seems like it should be the the field mice and the cockroaches of the world that uh, are are in the most danger, but in fact it is these uh, these frightening creatures. Uh, tell us first of all uh, why, in general, this is true. Well, these creatures face jeopardy of extinction because an individual, one of these creatures big and fierce as it is, needs a fair, uh, a large territory. So a population of these creatures needs an extremely large territory of fairly wild, fairly undisturbed landscape. And as we humans multiply, increase our population beyond 6.3 billion and continue to turn the world's uh, forests into, uh, into cropland, into roads, into cities, we're we're taking away their habitat. We're constricting it. We're fragmenting it. So there are fewer and fewer places on the landscape that are wild enough and large enough to support a population of these creatures. Therefore, uh, population after population is, is, is being reduced, uh, being pushed to the brink of extinction, and in some cases going extinct. Hmm. You say at one point part of the problem is that alpha predators... Uh, live at low population densities. They are spaced apart by what you say is their own hunger and their own ferocity. That's right, yeah. Um, you go into a forest, even a forest like the uh, in the mountains north of Vladivostok in the Russian Far East, the, the last stronghold of the Siberian tiger. 300 tigers live in an area there, a very large area, uh, and uh, you could spend uh, you can spend weeks, months, you could even spend years of your life walking through that forest, following their tracks in the snow, and you might very well never see one. They are spaced apart. They are sparse on the landscape. They are rare by virtue of the fact that they sit at the top of their food chain, and so they need these very very large areas to support uh, what the uh, what the uh, ecologists would call a, a genetically viable population. Hmm such a species. Give us some sense of what alpha predators have already been lost. Well, for instance, there used to be tigers that lived on the island of Java, the island of Bali. The, uh, they're now extinct. Uh, the grizzly bear of California is gone. The atlas bear in northern Africa, gone. Numbers of others, I think something like three or four of the subspecies of tigers, of about six or seven subspecies of tigers, have been completely eliminated in Asia. So one by one, uh, these, these big, expensive, uh, spectacular creatures are, are being squeezed out of the landscapes in which they've been native. Hmm. You mentioned the fact that uh, if, they, if, if a given creature uh, is, gets to the point where they cannot exist in their native habitats, if all we have left are... are um, alpha predators that live in protected compounds and zoos and so on, then you, you talk about how, in a sense, they are just as lost uh, as if they would be if, if they were utterly extinct. I- explain why you see this as a, as, a, as a calamitous loss, even if there are some of these creatures that still, in fact, live. Well, I think we'll suffer loss you know, really in two dimensions, or at least two dimensions. First, there's the sheer biological loss. Many of these big predators are what scientists call keystone species of their ecosystem. The keystone species being the single species of 
of inordinate importance to the integrity of its ecosystem. You pull the keystone away and the whole structure falls down. Likewise, if you exterminate a keystone species, then the integrity of the ecosystem begins to be lost. The ecosystem starts to be disrupted. It begins really to unravel. That's the biological side. But I also make the point that in terms of the sheer aesthetic, spiritual, psychological importance of these creatures, which has been very considerable throughout human history, that will be another sort of loss. If we exterminate all of these wild populations, these creatures exist only in zoos or as DNA in test tubes, then we will have um, have left our planet um, perhaps a safer and more convenient place, but a more boring, ugly, lonely place uh, than what we inhab- inherited from from our grandparents. We're speaking with David Quammen. His book is Monster of God, The Man-Eating Predator in the Jungles of History and the Mind. One of the things that is, of course, particularly interesting in, in reading your book is that we are also, in effect, reading the writing of, of much earlier authors reflecting on some of these very creatures from a, a, a very, very different perspective uh, from your own. And in, in many cases, earlier writers that, that uh, speak rather matter-of-factly about some of these creatures with, with no sense of, of their uh, Im- impending doom. Tell us, uh, and I'm thinking especially uh, not so much of the poetic writings of literature, but more the writing of, of early naturalists. Tell us uh, s- some of the most important things which you feel you have learned in, uh, in reading some of this material from uh, maybe a hundred years ago? Well, for instance, um, there was a very interesting English biologist named Charles Elton, who really was the first fellow ever to write a book on the subject of animal ecology. And um, he is the one who actually invented the concept of the food chain, uh, and it's something called the pyramid of numbers. He was the one who noticed that in any ecosystem, if you look at the, uh, the small animals that, uh, that consume grass, the, the small herbivores, uh, you'll find great abundance. You'll find large numbers. As you move, if you move up to the animals that prey upon those animals or to the, the larger herbivores, the deer, the elk, the bison that live on a landscape, you'll find slightly smaller numbers. Then you move up one step still to the predators who prey upon the big herbivores, and you find still smaller, smaller numbers. He called that the pyramid of numbers. It has to do with the way that energy flows through an ecosystem. Much of the energy is always lost. Only a small fraction of it can be used by the larger, more ferocious creatures. The result of that is that big predators are always inherently the most rare type of species in any ecosystem. That came to us from Charles Elton back in about 1927. In the uh, chapter which you devote to uh, the lions, the lions of, of, of India, uh, you quote an uh, early writer by the name of L. L. Fenton, who talks, for instance, about the question of, of why uh, lions uh, were and presumably are more vulnerable to hunters than tigers. Mm-hmm. And he would observe certain differences in, in the species in, in terms of how they moved, how they operated, how they interacted amongst themselves, and how they approached 
man. Those, those kind of distinctions between uh, various predators, I think, are, are uh, particularly fascinating. Right. And the case of the lion in India is especially fascinating. I mean, sometimes when I talk about the lion in India, people think, well, he means to say tiger. But the fact is, there is a subspecies of lion known as the Asiatic lion, used to live all across southwestern Asia, even into recent centuries, even recent decades, survives now only in a small population in the Gir forest of western India. Fenton was a member of the, uh, the British Empire, the British uh, Raj, uh, during the early 20th century, and he saw that, um, that hunters, including many, many British hunters, had been able to kill large numbers of lions, partly because lion in India lived in more open forest and savanna areas. They could be hunted on horseback, they could be tracked, they could be caught in the open, and they were, to some extent, fearless and, and, and turned to face the British hunters. So the lion was exterminated all across India except this one little area of gear. Meanwhile, the, t- the tiger was, uh, was more a denizen of thick, moist forest. It was more elusive. It was harder to track. You could not hunt it on horseback. And so the, the tiger has survived in the thousands in India, uh, whereas the, the Indian lion is now reduced to a population of just about 300. Hmm. In, in discussing the lions of India and the tigers, and, uh, and even the leopards, which uh, from time to time have, have mm-hmm. actually b- become man-eating predators a- as well, uh, one of the things you mentioned, I think, as you're specifically talking about leopards, is you say the incidence of attacks tends to rise in response to environmental stresses, such as drought, famine, or the constriction of habitat, that can lead to a cycle of grim consequences. Explain to us exactly how that cycle works. Well, under ordinary circumstances, leopard, as well as lion and tiger, would prey mainly on large herbivores in their ecosystem. Several different species of, of deer, wild boar, several kinds of antelope. If, uh, if two things happen, if humans move into the ecosystem and begin to pasture livestock in those ecosystems, uh, then the livestock supplant the native herbivores. They can't both exist there in great numbers because they're competing with each other for, for, for grazing and browsing resources. So the livestock tend to eliminate the native herbivores, and then the big predators, the leopards, the lion, the tigers, are left with no cons- left with no recourse but to prey on the meat that's there, and it turns out to be the livestock of humans. That's, that's a source of conflict. The other source of um, stress and conflict comes when you have, for instance, a very severe drought. In one phase, an early phase of the drought, the, the big predators will actually benefit because uh, herbivorous animals, either livestock or wild herbivores, will be stressed. They'll congregate around water holes. They'll be more vulnerable. The big predators will benefit. Their population will surge upward. Then, when a drought ends, people will be, uh, be able to protect their livestock better, and uh, the livestock will be concentrated less around shrinking water holes. That's the point when the big predators will feel the stress and they'll start leaping into corrals, jumping over fences, attacking any stock animal they can find, and sometimes attacking the humans who defend that mm. livestock. It's this in- happened at the end of the 19th century in India, and it happened again in the 1980s near the Gear Forest. Mm. 
What's interesting is that as we hear about that, it, it, at least to some extent, we really feel genuine sympathy for these animals that are, are driven to these predatory acts, uh, not out of, of course, any sort of evil, malicious intentions, mm-hmm. but out of, out of the necessity for survival. On the other hand, you really do try to help us understand uh, one of the really uh, sad, unfortunate truths here, which is the fact that it is so often in these countries the poor who bear what you would say a sort of disproportionate burden uh, that, that, that when these predators act in the way that you have just described, it is the poor that are most hurt. That's right, yeah, and that's, I suppose that's one of the things that's a little bit unconventional about this book. It's a book written with great concern for the conservation of big predators, but also I attempt to have some, um, some understanding of what it feels like to be a human living on the landscape with big predators and, and suffering jeopardy. In uh, most cases, the humans who are out there sharing the landscape with the big predators are native people, indigenous people, rural people, people without much in the way of physical resources or political power. That's not so much true in this country, but in places like western India, the Russian Far East, northern Australia, those are the people, the native people, the poor rural people, who really pay the costs of big predators, while we uh, concerned uh, urbanites at a great distance across the world are the ones who enjoy the benefits of knowing that these magnificent beasts still survive. So one of the, one of the tasks of, of conserving these creatures, as I explained in the book, is that we have to figure out a way to better distribute the costs and the benefits. We people who care at a distance have to pay a greater share of the costs, and we have to figure out ways for the native peoples who suffer the actual jeopardy to enjoy a greater share of the benefits. Hmm. What would you say are the most telling distinctions in terms of how man views the various kinds of alpha predators, lions and tigers, versus something like uh, a man-eating uh, crocodile. Uh, are there important distinctions for us to understand, and, and, and what, what might some of them be? Well, there certainly is the psychological distinction that, uh, that a non-mammal, whether it's a giant snake, uh, a giant crocodile, uh, or possibly a shark, strikes, I think, greater fear into a human victim or potential victim than a mammal does. Nobody wants to be attacked by a a grizzly bear or a tiger, but being seized by a saltwater crocodile and given what they call the death roll, where the crocodile pulls you under the water and spins you to drown you before ripping you to pieces so that it can eat you, there's something that's exceptionally um, scary and, and horrific about that. I suppose it's just because uh, mammals are, uh, are, are more similar to us. They have brown eyes and, and warm blood, and as horrible as it is to be, to be killed by any of these creatures, there's something spookier about being taken by, uh, by a reptile or a fish. Yeah, there's something about uh, predatory mammals where it, it seems a bit like a, a very, very, very distant cousin, mm. whereas these other creatures, although obviously they all are with us right here on Earth, they seem like something utterly different, and it is a different sort of peril somehow. And actually, the book began, its earliest kernel was when I made a visit to the island of Komodo 
in Indonesia to look at Komodo dragons. This was in connection with researching an earlier book, but it planted the seed in my mind because besides learning about the Komodo dragon, which are these giant flesh-eating lizards that occasionally attack a human, I talked to a Komodoese woman whose mother had been attacked and nearly killed by a Komodo dragon, and she talked about the extraordinary, horrifying intimacy that uh, that she felt when this Komodo dragon was latched onto her arm and she was looking down into its eyes. Uh, it seemed to be uh, uh, it seemed to be an especially blood curdling experience because this this was such a, a peculiar animal. Hmm. You mentioned uh, at one point in the book that uh, by your own estimate, although uh, you say that Homo sapiens and Alpha predators have been on this planet together for, I think you say, over 30,000 years or something like that. Well, actually, our species is, has shared landscape with them for more than a million years, but we have, we have artistic representations going back, yes, 35,000 years. Ah, that's it, in terms of some means of understanding the relationship there. Right. But you see that, uh, at least the way things are now, you see this relationship as being really on its last legs, that there I is not do. much longer to go because of the sheer arithmetic of uh, human population growth. There are 6.3 billion of us on this planet now, and the UN Population Division projects the possible peaking point at 10.8 billion, almost 11 billion people in the middle of the next century. And as I say in the book, if that happens, it's inconceivable that there will be large enough uh, areas of wild enough landscape to support viable populations of these creatures. Uh, it's, a, it's a prediction that I make reluctantly, but I just don't see how we can continue to multiply and, uh, and claim landscape and expect these creatures to be around. I think that they'll, at that point, be surviving only in zoos and in test tubes. And as you say, that is not at all the same thing. That's not the same. When they're lost from the wild, they're lost in the fullest and deepest sense. The book is Monster of God, The Man-Eating Predator in the Jungles of History and the Mind by David Quammen. It's published by W.W. Norton & Company. David Quammen, a real pleasure reading this fascinating book and speaking with you about it on The Morning Show. Thank you so much. Thank you, Greg. I've enjoyed talking with you.